This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. All my bosses were men. I didn't know women could be bosses. I, I just didn't know. That's why this sort of lean forward, lean back, lean up, I'm not sure that I, I was born at a time when you could lean forward. I think had I leaned forward, I would have toppled right over. That was Sheila Nevins, the president of HBO Documentary Films. No surprise, that was the world she became accustomed to when she set out to make a name for herself in the 1960s. Brian, you know how my business cards say badass? I think Sheila Nevins' business card should say F-O-N, Force of Nature. She is quite a character, isn't she? She's amazing. And as you said, not just a great writer, but a really interesting, insightful, soulful talker. One of the best I'd ever heard. Sheila came by to talk about a book she's written, really a book of essays about her life called You Don't Look Your Age and Other Fairy Tales. And I think that title is very emblematic of the tone of this book, Brian, because it's sort of a funny romp through her personal and professional life. And she has had such an interesting life, much of it spent doing documentaries. And I know you love documentaries as much as I do, Brian. Yeah, and I don't even have time to watch half the documentaries that are coming out these days. There's such a glut of them. But when I think about the best documentaries, I often think about what's on HBO, like Going Clear about Scientology or the jinx in which Robert Durst basically confessed to multiple murders on film. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Citizen Four about Edward Snowden. So it was great to hear from her um, about her perspective on that business and about the lessons that she's learned over the course of her, of her long life. She's 78 years old and I think in many ways is a microcosm of the feminist movement. And her stories are so, I, I think, intensely personal and really reflect 
the times uh, that she was living in and that we continue to live in. And painfully honest, by the way, she talks about getting an illegal abortion. She talks about having a facelift. She talks about how her mother doesn't really love her. She talks about her handicapped son. She, she touches so many hot buttons and a lot of topics that I think most writers avoid. We've talked to so many fascinating people, Brian, but I think this is one of my favorites. So I hope you all enjoy hearing from Sheila Nevins as much as we enjoyed talking to her. Sheila, what has it been like for you to share really very intensely personal stories with a mass audience of people who don't really know you and don't necessarily know your history or anything about you? Has it been weird? It's been um, very strange to be public because I've dealt my whole life with people who are public or stories that are public. But I've never really been public. Not that I'm public, that, you know, I can fill Madison Square Garden, don't get me wrong. But um, it's really odd. It's very odd to sort of be anonymously personal or personal anonymously. And um, I'm not sure I enjoy it. It makes me think in a very small way what celebrity must be like. Not that I am a celebrity, but how incredibly in, the encroachment of, of the, the lack of oxygen when you're just trying to sell a book. You know, who wants to hawk? I don't like hawking. It's not something I would repeat. I really? Would never, no, I would never do it again. Really? No, never. Did, never. And what would have been, well, first of all, I don't have any other stories left. <laughs> I've told them all. And second of all, I enjoy anonymity. I didn't know I enjoyed it. Um, but until I you didn't to, have it? Until, well, I, don't, I actually have it. I mean, I can go to the supermarket. It's okay. But what I mean is it, 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 I don't enjoy the tiny little bit of celebrity that a book brings. I don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy it. I'm surprised by it. And, uh, you know, it's so late in my life that I would have that. But it's, I see why I've hid from it for so long. And so if you didn't want attention and you didn't want recognition, what motivated you to, to write this? Untold stories. You know, I think I, I said in the beginning I had spent so much of my life or have spent so much of my life asking people their stories that I thought it was time to write mine. But I'm not sure that's totally accurate. I think it was like uh, there were things that I had experienced, things that I knew, things that I, 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 you know, that I hadn't told, things that I wanted to talk about. And I thought, ah. It seemed like one of the steps one takes on the way to eternity, and I thought, what the hell? I'll write a book. What was the hardest, you know, I I, I really loved your unflinching honesty, whether you're talking about sort of quiet moments that are shared experience but never discussed or talking about your decision to get a facelift with such humor and candor and something that women are never usually willing to talk about. Um, but when when you sat down in front of your computer, Sheila, and said, I'm going to write a chapter on blank, what was the hardest blank you had to tackle? Nothing was hard. Nothing? Nothing was hard. Because I've heard so many people tell me their stories for so long that I think I, I was, you know, it's sort of like bursting at the seams to tell it. I, no, nothing was hard. I, I, if it had been hard, I probably wouldn't have written it. Um, it was easy to say what was true, and it was easy to say what I was thinking, and I didn't really care about judgment. I'd been around too long. What I didn't expect was personal judgment. You know, I expected people to like it, they won't like it. I didn't think someone's going to say, well, you are fat, 
or they would say, um, you look your age. Or they, you know, I would get these these horrible, you know, Instagram, Twitter responses that were like attacks. I didn't no, I didn't expect that. Welcome to my world, Oh, Sheila. it's horrible. How do you tolerate it? I block a lot of them. Yeah. And uh, it is but actually— you're a sweetheart. It's so psychically uh, depleting. Depleting. It's and, really um, hard. It is hard. It it's is hard. hard. And you're like, wow. And also depends Why would who, someone say something yeah, like that? Yeah, and why do they care enough to say, I read two pages and I was so bored, don't waste your money? Why would they say that? First of all, the first two pages, I probably would have closed the book too. But give the book a shot. You know, and then there are lovely or, things. Or, you know, keep it to yourself. I mean, it's just, Why do it's, you feel? Because I think it's easier to criticize than it is to congratulate anonymously. And that's what social media gives you, anonymity. And I think that anonymity allows the devil to come out in some way. Um, because I don't think those people would face me and say those things. It's very disturbing. But most of this stuff is very favorable. I'm just the kind of person who remembers the stuff that isn't favorable. That's my, you know, treasure trove of punches. I like those. I, I, Stepping uh, back a little bit, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I was, no, no. Go ahead. One always interrupts me. I never stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> so can we back up for a second and talk a little bit about your, about your personal story for people who don't have the context? One of the major facts of your life is that your mother suffered from this disease, which yes. I'd never heard of before, called Raynaud's, mm -hmm. which affects circulation, and ultimately she had a a leg, an arm, and, and three fingers amputated. Yes. How did that affect your childhood and your perception of yourself growing up? Well, these things were gradual. So it started with fingers, and, you know, so I'd have all sorts of— I always have manicures to this day. Um, if I chip a nail, I get very anxious. Um, but it started with fingers, so I've always had a finger thing. I've always been able to look at people's hands and see how tired they are, or, you know, see if they're chipped. Let me see your fingers. Yeah, you're tired. <laughs> Did you cut your finger on that hand? I, I I actually bit my cuticle off. You bit your cuticle off. Yeah. <laughs> and I bite my nails. You do? Yeah. Terrible. You, see? you know, I, I I'm feel like very aware of it's so interesting. See, look well, at my nails. Don't well, I can I just say Sheila, yeah. dear listeners, ha yeah. has beautiful hands and, beautiful and perfectly manicured fingernails. And you know, I I feel like nobody looks at people's hands. I look at hands all the time because my mother didn't. Because the first thing I experienced was, you know, the tip of her finger coming off. It would get black and it would really uh. smell badly and it would chi literally chip off and it wouldn't ever get back. couldn't heal because there was no circulation. It's a disease of circulation in your extremities and it starts to, you know, it's kind of a circulatory leprosy in its most severe cases, but it depends how serious. The, and obviously know, yeah. hers was very Extremely serious. Extremely serious. And um, from about the time I was 10 or 11, she started having small amputations, you know, the tip of a finger. And I was very embarrassed about it because, you know, there was like that knobby end of a finger. And I, I always hated when my mother took her hand out, you know, hand out or take, took it out of gloves. And then it was another finger and then, you know, it was, it just kept going. It was like, it was just horrifying. You, I want to interrupt for two seconds because um, you have a whole constellation of people who, for the audio version of this book, Sheila read your essays, and I was very flattered to be among them. But Meryl, Meryl uh, reads an essay about your mom. Yes. Let's play it. Our sandwiches came, and the perfect coffee, hot on a hot day, but perfectly so. 
Mom rested her stump on the counter. Her shortened arm was heavy to lift and too short to hide below the counter. Suddenly, from the other side of the S-shaped counter, a middle-aged woman with a kinky permed bob and harlequin glasses, who was fanning herself with a newspaper, yelled out, Please, ladies, I'm eating. It's rude to expose that arm. It makes me want to throw up. That's what she said. Do you remember how you felt when that happened? (laughs) You know, the thing about someone as brilliant and genius and one of a kind as Meryl Streep is that she sounded like my mother when she read it. And it was, you know, not a woo-woo kind of person, but I have to say... It freaked me out when she read it because I wrote it without crying. I rewrote it many times without crying. But when Meryl Streep read it, I cried. It was something in the way that she read it that she sounded like my mother. She just sounded like it. And I felt that I was in chock full of nuts and that I was there all over again. And I guess that's the genius of great acting, which is that you immerse yourself in a role so much. But I was almost afraid to say goodbye to her after the record session was over because I felt that we were very intimately engaged and yet I don't really know her that well. So it was a very strange experience. But I do remember, it was so many years ago, but I remember being terrified that the woman would beat me up or hurt me, which was a very, I think, in retrospect, a sort of abnormal reaction because she was so hostile and the arm was such an affront to her that I felt that she was going to hurt us or hurt me. Not that I hadn't already been hurt by the amputation itself, but um, I remember it. You know, I remember it, especially when I hear that little clip. I remember it. And Uh, yet, you know, it sounds like, obviously, it it was very upsetting for you, but did you feel protective of your mom in that instance? Because I think that's— No, I felt ashamed. Ashamed. I felt ashamed, and I, I have spent a lot of time thinking about that in my life, which has been a long one, which is um, why was I ashamed of uh, disability? Maybe disability brings with it its own, in addition to the imperfection of not having a particular limb or having some imperfection, it also brings a kind of embarrassment at not being like other people. And I, I hate that feeling. I hate that feeling of, you know, of, of, being ashamed of a disability rather than proud that you're surviving with that disability. And so I think that I have um, worked very hard to be proud of difference and to assert difference, especially in docus, as something that is something to, be, to feel very strongly about, that to be like everybody else is not always the best thing in the world. And to survive an affliction is probably one of the great things of the world. And to say, this is me, I don't have an arm, you know, this is me, you know, I have an illness. This is me. You know, I, I, I can't see you, but I can feel your presence. I think those are very important stories to tell because um, everybody has a disability somewhere. Certainly the woman with the Harlequin glasses was mon- much more disabled than my mother as a human being, which I guess is the greatest disability of all. So, you know, I do remember it, and it, <laughs> it influences me. It's interesting because your son um, had Tourette's, um, and you you write about that and his his childhood struggle. Rosie O'Donnell read this essay in the audiobook, so let's listen to that, and then we'll talk about it, Sheila. Why does my body do what I don't want it to do? He asked. 
So came the useless explanations that I deemed suitable for a now seven-year-old boy. A body sometimes messes up, David, you know, then it gets better. And the body's brain can be very, very, very smart. Or so I hoped that Jumble would explain it. You see, sometimes the body mixes up messages like getting the wrong mail. You're not making sense, Mom. (laughs) I wasn't making sense. I was there, alone, in Tourette's land. I didn't really know the answer. How did your experience with your mom, Sheila, sort of affect how you parented your son? It was interesting. I, I My mother was dead before my son arrived. And um, I felt somehow <laughs> that um, this was my role in life, that I was somehow to be the caretaker of the wounded. Um, although David has certainly outgrown 95% of his Tourette's at that particular point from 5 till about 10 prepubescent. He had a very pretty severe case. Um, But I felt as if I'd gone from one caretaker to another caretaker. The difference was I always felt my mother had friends and adults and enough um, help from the outside to leave me alone, whereas I thought it was my role to take care of David lovingly and caringly, and it was the most important thing in my life. And I didn't feel... I thought, this is irony, right? I'm going from my mother to my son as a caretaker. But in one case, it was obligatory. And in the other case, it was out of, you know, just sheer love and passion and sorrow and wanting him to be better. So it was, but it was a very strange confluence of, of, you know, sort of like a cutout doll. I was like cut out for caretaking. But I'm not taking care of you. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I, I have to say, I, I think you're a beautiful writer. I, I love. Oh, so I, sweet. No, really, Thank you. and and you can see why because I think you're a beautiful speaker too. Oh, Katie. Thank no, you. I really mean that. I don't and, mean and to be. I don't no. really mean to be. I well, just, isn't it nice that, that it comes so naturally? Eyes, yeah, but if I close my eyes, I can tell a story. If I keep them open, I have a hard time. <laughs> Well, we're, when we come back, I want to talk more, and I know Brian's interested in this as well, about really your legendary career supporting and making documentaries and um, what it's been like to be a woman in this business all these years, something I'm particularly interested in as well. So we'll be back with more from Sheila Evans right after this. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We're back with Sheila Nevins, which is a real treat because, you know, Sheila, you can be as sort of um, modest and self-effacing as you want. But I think what what strikes people about this book is that you're writing about real stuff, right? So I think when things resonate with us and people can say, oh, I know what that feels like or I can relate to that. When you were at the Literary Partners Dinner and you were talking about your facelift, you know, I was thinking, shit, you know, I kind of need a facelift. I need to, I don't know, would I ever do that? I, I, you know, I'm feeling like I'm getting older and less attractive and it's a hard thing to to go through. It's a horrible thing to do. I could argue both sides of it. I was, well, the facelift or aging in general? No, aging I can tell you is crappy. But I would say that a facelift, I could say if it makes you feel better, it's low risk, although it is risk. All surgery is risk. Do it if it makes you feel better. On the other hand, I would say it's a superficial, unnecessary thing. You haven't been hired as a rocket. You've been hired because you're bright and smart and can make something happen. So just shut up and get old. So I, I would say <laughs> there's, there's two, there are two people here. But I want to be a rocket. I'm just kidding. I don't. <laughs> there are openings at the AARP. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That special. would be sad. That sounds like a really bad made-for-TV movie, sounds doesn't like a bad it? Docu, doesn't <laughs> yes, it? <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Um, but 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 it was so funny hearing you talk about it. And I can't be. I can't. I can't. How, what can I say? I can't endorse it because I endorse it because I did it. I can't endorse it because I'm not so proud that I did it. But I'm proud that I could talk about it and say, you know, what a fool I am. You know. It's, it's ridicu- ridiculous when you think about it. I mean, you know, plastic surgery was really invented after Hiroshima when the maidens came and they really, not exactly invented, but in, it became a, a profession which was repairing wounded faces, war faces, you know, tortured faces from, you know, napalm and, and bombs and burns. And um, from it emerged this vanity uh, sphere which, you know, seems to be getting going down to younger and younger people. Then came chemicals that could fill up holes, you know, Botox, which was used for, uh, you know, paralysis of certain ticks. Suddenly they thought, oh, my God, not only does it stop the tick, but it also smooths out the wrinkle. So suddenly this whole industry, which I support readily and almost embarrassingly, um, emerged. But... You know, never said I was. I'm a trying good to think of an artful way I'm of getting me out of this. Segue to, yeah, there is no segue. <laughs> I was trying to think of an artful segue about sleeping with your bosses, but I don't know how I can go Not from bosses, plastic surgery. You, see, you didn't to that. read it very carefully. It was a boss. Okay. In an interview, you said, I don't know that I slept my way to the top, but I did not sleep with my bosses, plural, in the uh-huh. early days when they wanted me. Yeah. And then the interviewer asked, and how is that different from sleeping your way to the top if you slept with your bosses? Who was this interview? He responded, there weren't that many. This, oh, was, yeah. this was also in that uh, CBS interview. Yeah. Jesus, you really And so do you this. regret that? or No, I don't regret <laughs> 
je regret rien. I don't regret anything. I mean, I'm, you know, I, what am I going to regret? That I slept with my boss? It didn't mean anything to me. It obviously meant a lot to him. He promoted me. So, you know, I didn't demote him. I just paid no attention to him once he promoted me. So who lost, him or me? <laughs> but you talked about how you changed your view on this subject. Yeah. I was interested very much by Gloria Steinem. But I'm not Gloria Steinem. I'm not as, I'm much more superficial. But I actually didn't know there was another way. I really didn't know. I was pretty. I was young. I wanted to advance. All my bosses were men. All my bosses at the Yale Drama School, there were nine or ten people in the directing program. One was a woman. Um, and the rest were all men. All my teachers were men. I, 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 all my jobs were men. I never, I, you know, I didn't have a woman boss. I didn't, I didn't even know what that was. Um, I didn't know women could be bosses until I got to Children's Television Workshop and worked for Joan Cooney, but I didn't know. I, I just didn't know. That's why this sort of lean forward, lean back, lean up, I'm not sure that I, I was born at a time when you could lean forward. I think had I leaned forward, I would have toppled right over. So maybe I leaned back. But I mean bosses. I mean, I'm trying to count. It's certainly maybe three, more likely two. I think three playing around, two for real. Is that fair? I don't know. We're all dead now, anyway. <laughs> you you <laughs> talk about going from Helen Helen Gurley Brown to to Gloria Steinem. So, yes. do you think today, Sheila, if you were a young woman trying to have a career, that that would have would ever cross your mind that hey, you know, I'll do this if it's going to help me? I, I would like to say I wouldn't do it. I would like to be honest, but I, then again, I'm so honest. Um, I can't answer that because I'm not a young woman today. But I wanted to succeed badly, and if those were the shots that were called, and I knew beforehand they were the shots. I'm not talking about someone coming in your office, throwing you on the ground and, you know, fucking you. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a complicit kind of understanding that this is the stepladder. And, you know, I, I don't really know. I don't know. Not saying what you think. A woman sits in a room and doesn't talk. A woman talks and gets interrupted. Those are all forms of harassment. I, you know, I don't know. How I mean, many, do, you think, do you think things have changed a lot? Because I still see... I don't think they've changed as much as we'd like to think they've changed. I, I agree with don't, you. I simply don't think that. You know, I asked Gloria Steinem a couple of weeks ago, why are men so angry at us? What did we do wrong? And she, she said, you have a womb. You know, and I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll think about that one for a while, you know. But um, look, there are exceptions. There are the good men that we occasionally are lucky enough to marry or know or even work for, but they're the exception. Um, most men are sexist. Most men are extremely competitive with women who are ambitious and not necessarily kind. It's very strange. I, I, I really don't know what it is. Do you know. think some men are sexist and don't? don't really realize Absolutely. that they're sexist. It's oh, sort of this sort of... question, um, without question. Implicit bias or subconscious yes, bias course. that the they carry they around with them in their backpacks. Yes, yes. And it probably starts with their mother. It may have something to do with sons and mothers breaking away from that mother, being angry at her because you're still dependent on her in some way, and then you take that into the workplace. I don't know. I'm not a psychiatrist, but it's certainly, it's there. 
You write about in your book at the moment in your career when you realize you're not being treated the same as your male colleagues. Uh, Lena Dunham reads this, so let's take a listen. Somehow a male colleague's check had been put in my envelope. We had the same job title. I worked on even more shows per month than he did. The difference. The amount on his check was twice mine. I steamed and fretted and realized who I was. I was a woman in the early 70s. Were men worth more? All of this made me cry. All of this made me angry. I wanted a life. I wanted my colleagues check. I wanted that male power. I wanted to be equal. I wanted to play ball in a man's ballpark. This is part of your feminist awakening, as you put it. It makes me mad just hearing it. Can you imagine opening that envelope? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can. Do you know how crazy I was when I opened it? I mean, I, I started screaming at the envelope. There was no one in my house at the time. I literally opened it. I saw his name on it. And I guess the two checks were stuck together, you know, because that was before they, there was direct deposit. So it must have been that the paste from one envelope was stuck to the other because mine was right underneath it. So, of course, I could see mine and I could see his. I'm not sure I knew exactly what mine was in relation to his till I saw them laying right next to each other. I was beside myself. I mean, beside myself. And I, what happened? I tore his check up. And I, um, I waited for the next clean moment. You know, everything is timing in life, really, unfortunately. And fortunately, I guess, if you have a good sense of it. And I, um, I waited till there was a kind of upheaval. And every job, every so often, somebody gets toppled and somebody new comes in. And when that happened, I went to the new person and, and said, I want to earn more money. I deserve more money. And um, I got it. I didn't have to sleep with him. And he was too late. I wasn't the sleeping kind anymore. Were you afraid? I mean, that takes a lot of guts. No, because <laughs> I had another offer. You see, I think that was the main thing, which is that I had, ironically, because things move around in media so much, one of my ex-bosses was in another company, and he said, why don't you come over here? And that gave me the, plus the upheaval, gave me the energy to say, well, if they don't do this, then I'm out of here. Um, so I did it. But, it, you know, I leaned forward. <laughs> Instead of lying back. <laughs> <laughs> that should be my book. <laughs> lying back. Yeah, that's, that's a good right. one. When you think about last year's presidential campaign, do you think sexism played a big role in Hillary Clinton's defeat? Probably. Yeah, probably. I mean, she may not have been the right candidate either. I don't know that. I'm not politically that astute. But um, certainly... Maybe from a black president to a woman president was not a possibility in this country. I, I don't know that because, you know, I voted for her. I stood in line for two hours, so I can't really answer. Um, but the person in front of me on the line was voting for Trump. And um, he was a banker, a nice young kid standing in line. We, we got to know each other because the line was so long. On 80, you know, it was kind of around the block. Did he say why he was voting for Donald money. Trump? He said money. He wanted to earn more money. He wanted more money to flow into the United States. He wanted there to be more jobs. He was in the import-export banking. I, I really don't remember very much. Mostly we talked about movies, you know. And I tried to fix him up, but then I realized it was, you know, 
like 25. I didn't know anybody that age. So. <laughs> You're like I am. I'm always no, I'm trying, trying to make to it, you know, make, make people it work. Up. In fact, yeah. I was thinking I should have a matchmaking <laughs> service. That's a good idea. Because so many people ask me to fix them up with people. Really? But let me, get, let me yeah. get back to movies because movies. you yeah. have spent your life, uh, well, much of your professional life, Sheila, focused on on making and, as I said, supporting great documentaries. What what makes a great documentary? When you're looking at all these, now there's such a proliferation of yeah. them. Uh, wh- what do you say? Like, is there a, is there a, well, uh, there, a criteria? There For me, there's a criteria. But that doesn't mean I don't work on other kinds of docus. I like um, people who emerge, who you don't know when you start the docu, and at the end you feel as if they're in your living room forever. Um, I like docus about people who have a hard time getting up and through the process of revelation or self-revelation in the docu are able to stand again, and that's a metaphor. Um, I like wounded people who punch back. Uh, To me, that makes a great documentary, whether it's Nanook or Salesman or, you know, Harlan County or whatever. I I like people who are underdogs. Um, I don't like docus particularly. I like to watch them. I don't like to work particularly on docus about well-known people or um, celebrities in any particular field. Although I do enjoy watching them, and I think they fall under the umbrella of docus. You're asking me how I define what is a pleasurable, satisfying, emotional work experience, since it takes a big chunk out of your life, your work, if not your whole life. Um, I like the sort of resurrection of the common man. That's my... Oh, that's a good title. Nobody would read that book. <laughs> I like that title too. What well, is there one that I know? I hate when people ask, ask me your like favorite? your favorite interview, but I mean, what well, it would certainly be this one? <laughs> <laughs> but 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 what what is your favorite documentary? Is there one that you think, wow, if like the first it's sentence about, of about my pellet. obituary, if it mentioned this documentary, no, I would feel proud. The first sentence of my obituary is going to say. Um, New York Times best-selling author because I was on the bestseller list last week. Mazel, mazel. See, mazel, mazel. Right? One week in a lifetime. That's another good title. One week in a lifetime, isn't it? Yeah, but that's that's, that 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 uh, assumes you're only going to be on <laughs> the list for one week, and we're going to be think positive. One week, no, I think one week is fine. Um, what was the? I forgot the question. Did you have one that com- particularly oh, well, I mean, resonated with you? I lo- well, it's not mine. I love the documentary. Uh, by Friedman and Epstein called The Life and Times of Harvey Milk because it was the beginning of the gay movement, really. Harvey Milk was, and I thought it was an extraordinary documentary that he was killed for being gay, really, um, in San Francisco, and I thought it was an extraordinarily interesting documentary. Um, And you said you're more interested in telling ordinary people's stories over celebrities, and yet so many of the HBO uh, documentaries that stick in my mind are about Famous people. Like what? Like which one? Well, the Jerry Weintraub documentary or the Robert Durst documentary. Well, Durst wasn't about Durst as much as it was a mystery. It wasn't really a celebrity doc. The Kid Stays in the Picture, was that an HBO doc? Bought bought it. And then the Snowden doc, Citizen Four, didn't you make that? Yeah, but you're using a different kind of word for celebrity. I also did... um, uh, Gloria Steinem, I don't consider that a celebrity doc. I consider that a movement doc with a celebrity person, you know, but Gloria can walk down the street and people won't know who she is. You know, Durst can steal a sandwich in a supermarket and, you know, we're not talking about a, you know, famous, Hollywood famous person. I guess what I'm thinking of is is a well-known person is an entry point to 
raising broader issues and telling a bigger story. But you'll notice that those docus are in the last, I'd say, five to seven years, as the market has become much more, much more crowded and the marketing of something has become so incredibly expensive and difficult. So the more, if you, if you can get a semi-celebrity to cut through the, the mass of stuff at, to tell a story, uh, you're, in, you're in much better shape. But I still resist it. I mean, I still prefer living on the minimum wage. You know, I, I still prefer that docu. I prefer a class divide about the Avenue School on one side and the Elliott Housing Project on the other and the park in the middle where both kids play and try to make a basket. Well, the kids who can make the basket have been in the park much more than they've been in school. And the kids who are going to really make the basket are in the Avenue School. So the injustice of the 1% is a much more interesting film for me to make than a celebrity docu. Although I would argue that uh, some of those are acquisitions and not things that we make from scratch. And that there's a difference in I that. was going to ask you about that, Sheila, because that's why I kept saying the, the documentaries that you produce and also support. Because in some cases, you, you buy other people's documentaries. Yes. And when you do that, do you then put your imprimatur on it or imprimatur? I never know which to, to say. I've been known to ruin other people. <laughs> <laughs> but do you, do you say, I'd like to buy this, and now I'd like to change it? Or do you buy it and sort of let it exist as it was? Uh, mostly what we buy, we leave. Because if it was good enough to buy and to lose the opportunity to create, then it has to be pretty good to begin with. Um, but, you know... Sometimes the producer wants different music or would like to do it a different way. Or, or wants some feedback from someone some who's experienced, right? Yeah, or, you know, and sometimes you don't touch anything. We didn't touch Citizen Four. I mean, we learn from Citizen Four. I learn from Laura all the time. I learn from Laura even when they're not our docus. I mean, you know, she's a teacher. What did you learn from her? To be a master storyteller first and to be politically so committed that you... You make a film that comes from your gut, not just another film. I mean, I, I think she's an extraordinary filmmaker. A listener called in with a, a question for you about the business of documentary filmmaking, mm -hmm. and let's listen to him. Hey, this is Kevin from California. Hi, Kevin. I'm an independent documentary filmmaker, and this question is for Sheila. <gasps> As we know, the media industry is changing fast. For example, online, we've got social media, consumers expect content for free, content creators can now reach their audiences directly, and, of course, with the constant barrage of political news coming from the Trump White House, it seems that any other news stories and documentary stories just get drowned out. So my question is, what do you think the business models of documentary storytelling will be in the future? Thanks. In the future or in the present? I can't predict the future. I'd love to, but I think that the strange thing happened. We did a film called Mommy, Dead, and Dearest uh, with Aaron Carr, and it's about Munchausen by proxy and this woman who tortures her child, and the child eventually kills the mother with someone she meets on the Internet, and you know, it's rating really high. We had no marketing. It invaded social media in a way that was unknown to us. Uh, it got picked up. It became a contagion. Uh, it maybe because it wasn't about today. Maybe because it wasn't about politics. Maybe because it was a human story. I don't really know the answer to your question, except that somehow you have to cut through everything and say, how can I be different? You know, how can I tell a story that has heart, that nudges the world, that moves it a little bit forward um, without being, you know, too proud about that? But, you know, something that has good value 
for humankind because God knows we need those stories. How has Netflix changed the business? Well, I mean, Netflix is, is, you know, you could say it's a competitor. On the other hand, it's an inspirer. It inspires you to find something that's good. I can't buy what Netflix can buy. I don't have the the ability to build a library in the way that they have, you know, made this great reputation and, and rightfully so on a library. I have to get them that month to pay that bill. So it's very different. The search for what will be stimulating a live, hot, uh, on fire, win awards. Um, it's a different It's a different business. Um, but it's a tough, it's tough. You know, it's I tough. was going through Netflix yeah. this weekend because I was looking for I Am Not Your Negro, which I haven't oh, seen yet. Oh, it's such yet. a great documentary. And, um, and, and my husband and I were going through all the documentaries on Netflix, and we're like, we had never heard of probably seven-eighths of those documentaries. And we said, you know, it's, it's, almost, it's almost heartbreaking because I know what goes into putting together a documentary. It's years and blood, sweat, and tears of people's lives. Well, if you put it on HBO, you'll know it's on. <laughs> no, you will because, I mean, we don't have the quantity. And certainly they have quality as well as we do. But we, we, we really push the title. But do you worry so about know. the glut of, of, of course, great I, documentaries? Honey, I worry about the rain on a sunny day. <laughs> and I worry about the glut of the documentaries. Of course I do. But in a sense, it's challenging. Because if you can do something that cuts through, geez, you must be good, right? Um, in a sense, there's a gift that comes with not being able to buy quantity. You know, I always remember when I was little, I had two dresses. Now I have like 95. I never know what to wear. I never had a problem knowing what to wear because I only had two choices. So I think you become more select when you, or selective, I should say, when you can only choose a, a limited number of things. When you're not building a library, you're building a monthly service that people want to subscribe to, and you know want to you know have. So it's different. It's different business. It's interesting. I, I want to bring this conversation full circle and just get back to the book one more time because we really want you to be Sheila on the New York Times bestseller list <laughs> well, then for go more, out than and buy just, a million more than just one week. Um, did I but, give you that copy for free or did you buy it? No, I, I, I actually got it in a, in a gift bag from Literary Literacy Partners. Wasn't that awful? 600 people got a book for free? I know. I was furious. I always try to go and mine. buy. John, <laughs> Where'd you get yours from? I got mine from Amazon. Oh, how touching. So getting back to your life story, Sheila, do you— you don't really regret writing this. I don't regret it, no. What to regret what? That someone said I was old or fat or stupid? Maybe I am. I don't, um, no, if I don't you, regret it. But if you it. knew then what you know now about the process of writing a book. I would write the same book. book all over again. Absolutely the same book. With the same characters hiding behind trees, the same characters coming out front. I think I would have punctuated a few things a little better. And, you know, I, I wish I could change a few sentences around. But no, I, I no regrets. I'm pretty proud of it. How did I do it? I had a full-time job, life, you know, whatever. I mean, how did I do it? I don't really know. I did you feel Did you feel like you learned about yourself in the process? I yes. mean, in other words— That's a very good question. Yes. I felt that I learned I was ashamed of nothing, that I had done nothing that really embarrassed me. Nothing. That's a good feeling. Not a facelift, not sleeping with a boss, not anything. And, you know, when I said to my son, I want to write about Tourette's, and I want to write about you, is it okay? And he said, yeah, if it's truthful. And when I read— the poem to a very old boyfriend, the anti-Semitic poem about what his mother had said to me, he said, it's true, and I was a coward. So how can I regret anything? I mean, I didn't tell any lies, so why would I regret? 
I hid behind a few trees, but I didn't tell any lies. Well, I was very honored to to be able to read one of the essays, and um, since this job. is <laughs> since this is my damn podcast, we're gonna we're gonna and Brian, sorry, but humor me. That's we're okay. gonna play a little bit of what I read because it was so much fun. So this was really about well, Sheila set up this essay. It's about technology and kind of it's about being alone on a red eye and realizing you're the only one with a hardcover book. And Katie took that part. I've been there. Let's listen. So there I was in the midst of this now-age flight, reading a hardcover book. It dated me, like saying record when you mean MP3, or telephone when you mean cell. But I didn't care. Suddenly, a strange thing occurred. In the midst of a rather disturbing, turbulent bump, my hardcover book's eyes opened. I didn't know until that very moment that books had eyes. Suddenly, tears rolled down the book's cover and the book spoke. I'm over, it said, sobbing. Done for. Everything is digital. I'm black and white. I'm old-fashioned print. That was so much fun, and I love the music. Method acting there, Katie. By the way, my husband, John, he's going to make so much fun of me because... He says, I'm so pretentious because I say rather rather than rather. But I don't know. Brian, do you say rather or rather? I do, too, and I blame you for that, actually. Really? My whole family blames you for that because they claim that before I met you, I said rather. Yeah, and now I say rather, and I don't even think about it. Do you say aunt or aunt? I say, I say aunt. I you say, say aunt, and then I you say, say rather. I do. I sh- I do a short a with everything this woman else. Needs, this woman needs help. <laughs> I need professional this, this help. Need professional help. Well, I was thrilled to be one of the readers of your wonderful essays, and uh, Sheila, I'm really happy you wrote Thank this you. book. And uh, I loved reading it, and I loved talking to you about it, and I loved talking to you about it, and I loved your reading it. Thank you. When you left, everybody said she's quite an actress. <laughs> You really took the book to heart. Sheila, thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Gianna Palmer, and to our intrepid sound engineer, Jared O'Connell. Thanks also to social media guru, Allison Bresnik, and to Emily Bina for her part in producing the show. Thanks as well to our engineer, Ryan, in Los Angeles, and to Nora Ritchie for her additional editorial assistance. Brian, I have to interrupt because you're sounding particularly raspy today. Brian has a little bit of a cold, so that's why he sounds like a male Brenda Vaccaro right now. I would like to thank Mark (laughs) Phillips for our theme music, and also plug alert, Mark makes music under the artist name Sono Odo. His new full-length album is called Inheritance, and it's out now, which reminds me, I don't think I sang during this podcast, Brian. And if I knew... No. Can you think of a Sheila Nevins-themed song? Inheritance. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) That was um, beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. Katie Couric and I are the executive producers of this podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can leave us a voicemail at 929-224-4637. And don't forget to call in with your questions for Matt Walsh. You can also email us at comments at currickpodcast.com. You can find me on social media at Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram, katie.couric on Snapchat. 
And Brian is GoldsmithB on Twitter. You definitely should follow Brian because he's a lot more opinionated than I am. And hey, if you like our show, please let the world know by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe as well. Thank you so much for listening. Brian, tell our nice listeners goodbye. Hasta luego. Au revoir. Talk to you next time. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.